Hello, Wild Wanders, and welcome to our wicked window of the internet. Won't you pour yourself a cup of your best tea, light a candle to stave away the darkness, and cozy up as we tell you a story? Wittershins is a weekly podcast where we will dive into dusty bookshelves and winding darkened pathways looking to stories from folklore, fairy tales, mythology, legend, and beyond. We are accompanied by our trusted bard and guitarist, Joe Saborin, who will be live composing for us as our characters find their way out of the thickets and snarls of their tales. My name is Ashley Nunez, and I will be your narrator to peer over bough and branch, following our heroes and foes into far distant lands, both familiar and unknown. Let us begin once upon a time. Transformation by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Forthwith, this frame of mine was wrenched with woeful agony, which forced me to begin my tale, and then it set me free. Since then, at an uncertain hour, that agony returns. Until my ghastly tale is told, this heart ancient mariner. I have heard it said that when any strange, supernatural, and necromantic adventure has occurred to a human being, that being, however desirous he may be to conceal the same, feels at certain periods torn up, as it were, by an intellectual earthquake and is forced to bear the inner depths of his spirit to another. I am a witness of the truth of this. I have dearly sworn to myself never to reveal to human ears the horrors to which I once, in excess of fiendly pride, delivered myself over. The holy man who heard my confession and reconciled me to the church is dead. None knows that once. Why should it not be thus? Why tell a tale of impious temptation of providence and soul-subduing humiliation? Why, answer me, ye who are wise in the secrets of human nature? I only know that so it is, and in spite of strong resolve of a pride that too much masters me, of shame, and even of fear, so to render myself odious to my species, I must speak. Genoa my birthplace, proud city, looking upon the blue Mediterranean. Dost thou remember me in my boyhood, when thy cliffs and promontories, thy bright sky and gay vineyards were my world? Happy time, when to the young heart, the narrow-bounded universe which leaves by its very limitation free scope to the imagination, enchains our physical energies and sole period in our lives, innocence and enjoyment are united. Yet who can look back to childhood and not remember its sorrows and its harrowing fears? I was born with the most imperious, haughty, tameless spirit. I quailed before my father only, and he, generous and noble, but capricious and tyrannical, at once fostered and checked the wild impetuosity of my character. 
making obedience necessary, but inspiring no respect for the motives which guided his commands to be a man, free, independent, or, in better words, insolent and domineering, was the hope and prayer of my rebel heart. My father had one friend, a wealthy Genoese noble, who, in a political tumult, was suddenly sentenced to banishment and his property confiscated. The Marquess Torella went into exile alone. Like my father, he was a widower. He had one child, the almost infant Juliet, who was left under my father's guardianship. I should certainly have been unkind to the lovely girl, but that I was forced by my position to become her protector. A variety of childish incidents all tended to one point, to make Juliet see me a rock of defense, I and her, one who must perish through the soft sensibility of her nature, too rudely visited, but for my guardian care. We grew up together. The opening rose in May was not more sweet than this dear girl. An irradiation of beauty was spread over her face, her form, her step, her voice. My heart weeps even now to think of all that relying, gentle, loving, and pure that she enshrined. When I was eleven and Juliet eight years of age, a cousin of mine, much older than either, he seemed to us a man, took great notice of my playmate. He called her his bride and asked her to marry him. She refused and he insisted drawing her unwillingly towards him. When the countenance and emotions of a maniac, I threw myself on him. I strove to draw his sword. I clung to his neck while the ferocious resolve to strangle him. He was obliged to call for assistance to disengage himself from me. On that night, I led Juliet to the chapel of our house. I made her touch the sacred relics. I harrowed her child's heart and profaned her child's lips with an oath that she would be mine and mine only. Well, those days passed away. Torella returned in a few years and became wealthier and more prosperous than ever. When I was 17, my father died. He had been magnificent to prodigality. Torella rejoiced that my minority would afford an opportunity f to repairing my fortunes. Juliet and I had been a finance besides my father's deathbed. Torella was to become a second parent to me. I desired to see the world and I was indulged. I went to Florence, to Rome, to Naples, thence I passed to Toulon, and at length reached what had long been become of my wishes, Paris. There was a wild work in Paris then. The poor king, Charles VI, now sane, now mad, now a monarch, now an abject slave, was the very mockery of humanity. The queen, the Dauphin, the Duke of Burgundy, alternately friends and foes, now meeting in prodigal feasts, now shedding blood in rivalry, were blind to the miserable state of their country and the dangers that impended over it, and gave themselves wholly up to the dissolute enjoyment or savage strife. My character still followed me. I was arrogant and self-willed. I loved display, and above all, I threw off all control. My young friends were eager to foster passions, which furthered them with pleasures. 
I was deemed handsome. I was master of every knightly accomplishment. I was disconnected with any political party. I grew a favorite with all. My presumption and arrogance was pardoned in one so young. I became a spoiled child. Who could control me? Not the letters and advice of Torella. Only strongly necessity visiting me to the abhorred shape of an empty purse. But there were means to refill this void. Acre after acre, estate after estate I sold. My dress, my jewels, my horses, and their comparisons were almost unrivaled in gorgeous Paris, while the lands of my inheritance passed into possessions of others. The Duke of Orleans was waylaid and murdered by the Duke of Burgundy. Fear and terror possessed all Paris. The Dauphin and the Queen shut themselves up. Every pleasure was suspended. I grew weary of this state of things, and my heart yearned for my boyhood's haunts. I was nearly a beggar, yet still I would go there, claim my bride, and rebuild my fortunes. A few happy ventures as a merchant would make me rich again. Nevertheless, I would not return in humble guise. My last act was to dispose of my remaining estate near Alboro for half its worth for ready money. Then I dispatch all kinds of artificers, raz, the furniture of regal splendor, to fit up the last relic of my inheritance, my palace in Genoa. I lingered a little longer yet, ashamed at the part of the prodigal returned, which I feared I should play. I sent my horses, one matchless Spanish genet. I dispatched my promised bride, its comparisons flamed with jewels and cloth of gold. In every part, I caused to be entwined with the initials of Juliet and her Guido. My present found favor in hers and in her father's eyes. Still, to return a proclaimed spendthrift, the mark of an impertinent wonder, perhaps of scorn, and to encounter singly the reproaches or taunts of my fellow citizens was no alluring prospect. As a shield between me and censure, I invited some few of the most reckless of my comrades to accompany me. Thus I went armed against the world, hiding in rankling feeling, half fear and half penitence, my bravado. I arrived in Genoa. I trod the pavement of my ancestral palace. My proud step was no interpreter of my heart, for I deeply felt that, though surrounded by every luxury, I was a beggar. The first step I took in claiming Juliet must widely declare me such. I read contempt or pity in the looks of all I fancied that rich and poor, young and old, regarded me with derision. Torella came not near me. No wonder that my second father should expect a son's deference from me in waiting first on him, but galled and stung by a sense of my follies and demerit, I strove to throw the blame on others. We kept nightly orgies in Palazzo Carrega, to sleepless, riotous nights followed listless, supine mornings. At the Ave Maria, we showed our dainty persons in the streets scoffing at the sober citizens, casting insolent glances on the shrinking women. Juliet was not among them. No, no, if she had been there, shame would have driven me away if love had not brought me to her feet. I grew tired of this. Suddenly, I paid the Marchess a visit. He was at his villa, one among many, which the deck of suburb of San Pietro de Arena was in the mouth of May. 
blossoms of their fruit trees were fading among thick green foliage. The vines were shooting forth. The ground stewed with the fallen olive blooms. Firefly was in the myrtle hedge. Heaven and earth wore a mantle of surpassing beauty. Torella welcomed me kindly, though seriously, and even his shade of displeasure soon wore away. Some resemblance of my father, some look and tone of youthful ingenuineness, softened the good old man's heart, sent for his daughter. He presented me to her as her betrothed. The chamber became hallowed by holy light as she entered. Hers was that cherub look, those large, soft eyes, full dimpled cheeks, and mouth of infinite sweetness that expresses the rare union of happiness and love. Admiration first possessed me, she is mine, was the second proud emotion, and my lips curled with haughty triumph. I had not been the infant gâté of the beauties of France, not to have learnt the art of pleasing the soft heart of women. If towards men I was overbearing, the deference I paid to them was the more in contrast. I commenced my courtship by the displays of a thousand gallantries to Juliet, who vowed to me from infancy had never admitted the devotion of others, and who, though accustomed to expressions of admiration, was uninitiated in the language of lovers. For a few days, all went well. Torella never alluded to my extravagance. He treated me as a favorite son. But the time came as we discussed the preliminaries to my union with his daughter when this fair face of things should be overcast. A contract had been drawn up in my father's lifetime. I have rendered this, in fact, void, having squandered the whole of the wealth which was to have been shared by Juliet and myself. Torella, in consequence, chose to consider this bond as cancelled, and proposed another, in which, though the wealth he bestowed was immeasurably increased, there were so many restrictions as to the mode of spending it that I, who saw independence only in free career, being given to my own impetuous will, taunted him in taking advantage of my situation and refused utterly to subscribe to his conditions. The old man mildly strove to recall me to reason. Roused pride became the tyrant of my thought. I listened with indignation. I repelled him with disdain. Juliet, thou art mine. Did we not interchange vows in our inner innocent childhood? Are we not one in the sight of God? And shall thy cold-hearted, cold-blooded father divide us? Be generous, my love, be just, take not away a gift, last treasure of thy guido, retract not thy vows, let us defy the world, and setting it not in the calculations of age, find in our mutual affections a refuge from every ill. Fiend, I must have been with such sophistry, to endeavor to poison that sanctuary of holy thought and tender love. Juliet shrank from me, affrighted. Her father was the best and kindest of men, and she strove to show me how, in obeying him, every good would follow. He would receive my tardy submission with warm affection, and generous pardon would follow my repentance. Profitless words for a young and gentle daughter to use as a man accustomed to make his will law, and to free in his own heart a despot so terrible and stern 
that he could yield obedience to not save his own imperious desires, my resentment flew and grew with resistance. My wild companions were ready to add fuel to my flame. We laid a plan to carry off Juliet at first. It appeared to be crowned with success. Midway on our return, we are overtaken by the agonized father and his attendants. A conflict ensued. Before the city guard came to decide the victory in favor of our antagonist, two of Torella's servitors were dangerously wounded. This portion of my history weighs most heavily with me. Changed man as I am, I abhor myself in the recollection. May none who hear this tale ever have felt as I. A horse driven to fury by a rider armed with barbed spurs was not more a slave than I to the violent tyranny of my temper. A fiend possessed my soul, irritating it to madness. I felt the voice of conscience within me, but if I yielded to it for a brief interval, it was only to be a moment after torn, as by a whirlwind away, borne along that stream of desperate rage, the plaything of the storms engendered by pride. I was imprisoned in at the instance of Torella set free. Again, I returned to carry off both him and his child to France with hapless country, then preyed upon by the freebooters and gangs of lawless soldiery, offered a grateful refuge to a criminal like me. Our plots were discovered. I was sentenced to banishment, and as my debts were already enormous, my remaining property was put in the hands of commissioners for their payments. Torella again offered his mediation, requiring only my promise not to renew my abortive attempts on himself and his daughter. I spurned his offers and fancied that I triumphed when I was thrust out from Genoa, a solitary and penniless exile. My companions were gone. They had been dismissed to the city some weeks before, and they were already in France. I was alone. Friendless, neither sword at my side nor took it in my purse. I wandered along the seashore, a whirlwind of passion possessing and tearing my soul. It was as if a live coal had been set burning in my breast. At first, I meditated on what I should do. I would join a band of freebooters. Revenge, the word seemed to me, I hugged it, caressed it, till like a serpent, it stung me. Then again, I would abjure and despise Genoa, the little center of the world. I would return to Paris, where so many of my friends swarmed, where my services would be eagerly accepted. Where I would carve out my fortune with my sword and make my paltry birthplace and the false Torella rue the day when they drove me. A new Coriolanus from her walls. I would return to Paris, thus on foot a beggar, and present myself in my poverty. To those I had formerly entertained sumptuously, there was gall in the mere thought of it. The reality of things began to dawn upon my mind, bringing despair. In its train, for several months I had been a prisoner evils of my dungeon had whipped my soul to madness, but they subdued my corporeal frame. I was weak and wan. Torella had used a thousand artifices to administer to my comfort. I had detected and scorned them all, and I reaped the 
harvests of my obduracy. What was to be done? Should I crouch before my foe and sue for forgiveness? Die rather ten thousand deaths. Never should they obtain that victory. Hate, I swore. Eternal hate. Hate from whom to whom? From a wandering outcast to a mighty noble. I and my feelings were nothing to them. Already they had forgotten one so unworthy. And Juliet? Her angel face and sylph-like form gleaming among the clouds of my despair with vain beauty, for I had lost her. The glory and the flower of the world, another will called her thus. That smile of paradise will bless another. Even now, my heart fails within me when I recur this rout of grim-visaged ideas. Now subdued almost to tears, now raving in my agony, still I wandered along the rocky shores which grew at each step wilder and more desolate. Hanging rocks and hoar precipices overlooking the tideless oceans. Black caverns yawned, and forever among the sea-worn recesses murmured and dashed the unfruitful waters. Now my way was almost barred by the abrupt promontory, now rendered nearly impractable fragments fallen from the cliff. Evening was at hand when seaward arose as if on the waving of a wizard's wand. A murky web of clouds blotted the late azure sky and darkening and disturbing the till, now placid deep. The clouds had strange, fantastic shapes and they changed and mingled and seemed to have driven about by a mighty spell raised their white crests, the thunder first muttered, then roared across the waste of waters which took a deep purple dye flecked with foam. The spot where I stood looked on one side to the widespread ocean, on the other it was barred by a rugged promontory. Round this cape suddenly came, driven by the wind, a vessel. In vain, the mariners tried to force a path for her to the open sea. The gale drove her on the rocks. It will perish. All on board will perish. Would I among them? And to my young heart, the idea of death came for the first time, blended with that of joy. It was an awful sight to behold that vessel struggling with her fate. Hardly could I discern the sailors, but I heard them. soon. A rock just covered by the tossing waves and so unperceived lay in wait for its prey. A crash of thunder broke over my head at that moment that with a frightful shock the vessel dashed upon her unseen enemy. In a brief space of time she went to pieces. There I stood in safety and there were my fellow creatures battling, how hopelessly, with annihilation. Methought I saw them struggling, too truly did I hear their shrieks, conquering the barking surges in their shrill agony. The dark breakers threw hither and thither the fragments of the wreck. Soon it disappeared. I had been fascinated to gaze till the end. At last I sank on my knees. I covered my face with my hands. I again looked up. Something was floating on the billows towards the shore. It neared and neared. 
Was that a human form? It grew in more and more distinct, and at last, a mighty wave lifting the whole freight lodged it upon the rock, a human being bestride a sea chest, a human being? Yet, was it one? Surely never such had existed before, a misshapen dwarf with squinting eyes, distorted figures, and body deformed till it became a horror to behold my blood lately warming towards a fellow being so snatched from a watery tomb, frozen my heart. The dwarf got off the chest, he tossed his straight, struggling hair from his odious visage. By Saint Beelzebub, he exclaimed, I've been well bested. He looked round and saw me. Oh, by the fiend, here is another ally of the mighty one. To what saint did you offer prayers, friend, if not to mine? Yet I remember you not on board. I shrank from the monster and his blasphemy again. He questioned me, and I muttered some inaudible reply. He continued. Your voice is drowned by this dissonant roar. What a noise the big ocean makes. Schoolboys bursting from their prisons are not louder than these waves set free to play. They disturb me. I will not more of their ill-timed brawling. Silence, hoary one. Winds avaunt to your homes. Clouds fly to the antipodes and leave our heaven clear. As he spoke, he stretched out his two long, lank arms that looked like spiders' claws and seemed to embrace them with the expanse before him. Was it a miracle? The clouds became broken and fled. The azure sky first peeped out. There was spread a calm field of blue above us. The stormy gale was exchanged to the softly breathing west, the sea grew calm, the waves dwindled to ripplets. I like obedience even in these stupid elements, said the dwarf. How much more of the tameless mind of man it was well got up storm you must allow, and all of my own making. It was a tempting providence to interchange talk with this magician, but power in all its shapes is respected by man. Awe, curiosity, a clinging fascination drew me towards him. Come, don't be frightened, friend, said the wretch. I am good-humored when pleased, and something does please me in your well-proportioned body and handsome face, though you look a little woebegone. You have suffered a land, I, a sea wreck. Perhaps I can lay the tempest of your fortunes as I did my own. Shall we be friends? And he held out his hand. I could not touch it. Well then, companions, that will do as well. And now, while I rest after the buffeting I underwent just now, tell me why, young and gallant as you seem, you wander thus alone and downcast as this wild seashore. The voice of the wretch was screeching and horrid, and his contortions as he spoke were frightful to behold. Yet he did gain a kind of influence over me. I could not master, and I told him my tale. When it was ended, he laughed long and loud. The rocks echoed back the sound. Hell seemed yelling around me. Oh, thou cousin of Lucifer, said he. So thou too hast fallen through thy pride, and though bright as the sun of morning, thou art ready to give up thy good looks, thy bride, and thy well-being, rather than submit thee to the tyranny of good. I honor thy choice by my soul. So thou hast fled 
and yield that day, and mean to starve on these rocks, and to let the birds peck out thy dead eyes while thy enemy and thy betrothed rejoice in thy ruin. <laughs> thy pride is strangely akin to humility, methinks. As he spoke, a thousand fanged thoughts stung me to the heart. What would you that I should do, I cried. I own nothing, but lie down and say your prayers before you die. But were I you, I know the deed that should be done. I drew him near. His supernatural powers made him an oracle in my eyes, yet a strange, unearthly thrill quivered through my frame as I said, Speak, teach me, what act do you advise? Revenge thyself, man, humble thy enemies, set thy foot on the old man's neck, and possess thyself of his daughter. To the east and west I turn, cried I, and seize no means, had I gold? Much could I achieve, but poor and single I am powerless. The door had been seated on his chest as he listened to my story. Now he got off. He touched a spring. It flew open. A mine of wealth, blazing jewels, beaming gold, and pale silver was displayed therein. A mad desire to possess this treasure was born within me. Doubtless, I said, one so powerful as you could do all these things. Nay, said the monster humbly. I am less omnipotent than I seem. Some things I possess which you may covet, but I would give them all for a small share or even for a loan of what is yours. My possessions are all at your service, I replied bitterly. My poverty, my exile, my disgrace, I make free gift of them all. Good, I thank you. And one other thing to your gift, and my treasure is yours. As nothing is my sole inheritance, what besides nothing would you have? Your comely face and well-made limbs. I shivered. Would this all-powerful monster murder me? I had no dagger. I forgot to pray, but I grew pale. I ask for a loan, not a gift, said the frightful thing. Lend me your body for three days. You shall have mine to cage your soul the while, and in payment, my chest. What say you to the bargain? Three short days. We are told that it is dangerous to hold unlawful talk, and well do I prove the same. Tamely written down, it may seem incredible that I should lend any ear to this proposition, but in spite of his unnatural ugliness, there was something fascinating in a being whose voice could govern earth, air, and sea. I felt a keen desire to comply for with that chest I could command the world, my only hesitation resulted from a fear that he would not be true to his bargain. Then I thought I shall die here on these lonely sands and the limbs he covets and mine no more. It is worth the chance. And besides, I knew that by the rules of art magic, there were formula and oaths which none in its practice dared break. I hesitated to reply. He went on, now displaying his wealth, now speaking of the petty price he demanded till it seemed madness to refuse. Thus it is. 
place our bark in the current of the stream, and down over fallen cataract it is hurried. Give up our conduct to the wild torrent of passion, and we are away. We know not whither. He swore many an oath, and I abjured him by many a sacred name, till I saw this wonder of power, this ruler of the elements, shiver like an autumn leaf before my words, as if the spirit spake unwillingly, and perforce within him at last he with broken voice revealed the spell whereby he might be obliged, did he wish to play me false, to render up the unlawful spoil, our warm lifeblood must mingle to make mar the charm. Enough of this unholy theme. I was persuaded the thing was done. The morrow dawned upon me as I lay on the shingles, and I knew not my own shadow as it fell from me. I felt myself changed to a shape of horror and cursed my easy faith and blind credulity. The chest was there. There was the gold and precious stones for which I had sold the frame of flesh which nature had given me. A sight a little stilled my emotions. Three days would soon be gone. They did pass. The dwarf had supplied me with a plenteous store of food. At first I could hardly walk, so strange and out of joint were all of my limbs and my voice. It was that of the fiend, but I kept silent and turned my face to the sun that I might not see my shadow and counted the hours and ruminated on my future conduct to bring Torella to my feet, to possess my Juliet in spite of him. All this my wealth could easily achieve. During dark night I slept and dreamt of the accomplishments of my desires. Two suns had set third dawned. I was agitated, fearful. Oh, expectation, what a frightful thing art thou, when kindled more by fear than hope. How dost thou twist thyself round the heart, torturing its pulsations? How dost thou dart unknown pangs all through our feeble mechanisms, now seeming to shiver us like broken glass to nothingness, now giving us a fresh strength which can do nothing, and so torments us by sensation such as a strong man must feel when he cannot break his fetters, though they bend in his grip. Slowly paced the bright, bright orb up in the eastern sky. Long it lingered in the zenith, and still more slowly wandered down the west. It touched the horizon's verge. It was lost. Its glories were on the summits of the cliffs. They grew dun and gray. The evening star shone bright. He will soon be here. He came not by the living heavens. He came not, and night dragged out its weary length, and in the decaying age day began to grizzle its dark hair, and the sun rose again on the most miserable wretch that ever abraded its light. Three days thus I passed the jewels and the gold. Oh, how I abhorred them. Well, well, I will not blacken these pages with demonic ravings. All too terrible were the thoughts, the raging tumults of ideas that filled my soul. At the end of that time, I slept. I had not before since the third sunset, and I dreamt that I was in Juliet's feet, and she smiled, and then she shrieked, for she saw my transformation. Again, she smiled, for still her beautiful lover knelt before her, but it was not I. It was he, the 
fiend arrayed in my limbs, speaking with my voice, winning her with my looks of love, and I strove to warn her, but my tongue refused its office. I strove to tear him from her, but I was rooted to the ground. I awoke with the agony there where the solitary horror precipice is there, the plashing sea, the quiet strand, and the blue sky over all. What did it mean? What is my dream but a mirror of the truth? Was he wooing and winning my betrothed? I would on the instant back to Genoa, but I was banished. I laughed. The dwarf's yell burst from my lips. I banished? Oh no. They had not exiled the foul limbs I wore. I might with these enter the city without fear of incurring the threatened penalty of death, my own, my native city. I began to walk toward Genoa. I was somewhat accustomed to my distorted limbs. None were ever so ill-adapted for the straightforward movement. It was with infinite difficulty that I proceeded. Then, too, I desired to avoid all the hamlets strewn here and there on the sea bench, for I was unwilling to make a display of my hideousness. I was not quite sure that if seen, the mere boys would not stone me to death as I passed for a monster. Some ungentle salutations I did receive from the few peasants or fishermen I chanced to meet, but it was a dark night before I approached Genoa. The weather was so balmy and sweet that it struck me that the Marchess and his daughter would very probably have quitted the city for their country retreat. It was from Villa Torella that I had attempted to carry off Juliet. I'd spend many an hour reconnoitering the spot. I knew each inch of ground in its vicinity. It was beautifully situated and bosomed in trees on the margin of a stream. As I drew near, it became evident that my conjecture was right. Nay, moreover, that the hours were being then devoted to feasting and merriment. For the house was lighted up, strains of soft and gay music were wafting toward me from the breeze my heart sank within me. Such was the generous kindness of Trella's heart that I felt sure he would not have indulged in public manifestations of rejoicing just after my unfortunate banishment, but for a cause I dared not dwell upon. The country people were all alive and flocking about. It became necessary that I should conceal myself, and yet I longed to address someone or to hear others discourse in any way to gain intelligence of what was really going on. At length, entering the walks that were in immediate vicinity to the mansion, I found one dark enough to veil my excessive frightfulness. Yet others as well as I were looting in the shade, and I soon gathered all I wanted to know. All that first made my heart die with horror and then boil with indignation. Tomorrow, Juliet was to be given to the penitent, reformed, beloved Guido. Tomorrow, my bride was to pledge her vows to a fiend from hell, and I did this. My accursed pride, my demonic violence and wicked self-idolatry had caused this act. For if I had acted as the wretch who had stolen my form had acted, if with a mind at once yielding and dignified, I had presented myself to Torella, saying, I have done wrong, forgive me. I am unworthy of your angel child, but permit me to claim her hereafter when my altered conduct shall manifest that I abjure my vices and endeavor to become in some sort worthy of her. I go to serve against the infidels when my zeal for religion and my true penitence for the past shall appear to you to cancel my crimes. Permit me again to call myself your son, 
Thus had he spoken, and the penitent was welcomed even as the prodigal son of the scripture. The fatted calf was killed for him, and he still pursuing the same path displayed such open-hearted regret for his folly, so humble a concession of all his rights, and so ardent a resolve to reacquire them by a life of contrition and virtue that he quickly conquered the kind old man and full pardon and the gift of his lovely child followed in swift succession. Oh, had an angel from paradise whispered to me to act thus? But now, what would be the innocent Juliet's fate? Would God permit the foul union or some prodigy destroying it link the dishonored name of Correga with the worst of crimes? Tomorrow at dawn they were to be married. There was but one way to prevent this. To meet mine enemy and to force the ratification of our agreement, I felt that this could only be done by mortal struggle. I had no sword, if indeed my distorted arms could wield a soldier's weapon, but had a dagger, and in that lay my hopes. There was no time for pondering or balancing nicely that question. I might die in the attempt, but besides that burning jealousy and despair of my own heart, honor, mere humanity, demanded that I should fall rather than not destroy the machinations of the fiend. The guests departed. The lights began to disappear. It was evident that the inhabitants of the villa were seeking repose. I hid myself among the trees. The garden grew desert, the gates were closed, I wandered round and came under a window. Ah, well did I know the same, a soft twilight glimmered in the room. The curtains were half withdrawn, it was the temple of innocence and beauty. Its magnificence was tempered, as it were, by the slight disarrangements occasioned by its being dwelt in. All the objects scattered around displayed the taste of her who hallowed it by her presence. I saw her enter with a quick light step. I saw her approach the windows. She drew back the curtain yet further and looked out into the night. Its breezy freshness played upon her ringlets and wafted them from the transparent marble of her brow. She clasped her hands, her raised eyes to the heavens. I heard her voice, Guido. She softly murmured, mine own Guido. And then, as if overcome by the fullness of her own heart, she sank to her knees, her upraised eyes, her graceful attitude, the beaming thankfulness that lighted up her face. Oh, these are tame words, heart of mine. Thou imaginest ever, though thou canst not portray the celestial beauty of that child of light and love. I heard a step, a quick, firm step, along the shady avenue. Soon, I saw a cavalier, richly dressed, young, and methought graceful to look on, advance. I hid myself, yet closer the youth approached, paused beneath the window. She arose and again looked out. She saw him and said, I cannot know. At this distinct time, I cannot record her terms of soft, tense, silver tenderness. To me, they were spoken, but they were replied by him. I will not go, he cried. Here, where you have been, where your memory glides like some heaven-visiting ghost, I will pass the long hours till we meet. Never, my Juliet, again, day or night to part, but do thou, my love, retire. The cold morn and fitful breezes will make thy cheek pale and fill with languor thy love-lighted eyes. Ah, sweetest, if I could press one kiss upon them, I could, methinks, repose. And he approached, 
still near, and methought he was about to clamber into her chamber. I had hesitated not to terrify her. Now I was no longer master of myself. I rushed forward. I threw myself on him. I tore him away. I cried, oh, loathsome and foul-shaped wretch. I need not repeat epithets all tending, as it appeared, to rail at the person that I present some partiality for. A shriek rose from Juliet's lips. I neither heard nor saw. I only felt mine enemy, whose throat I grasped, my dagger's hilt. He struggled but could not escape that length. Hoarsely he breathed these words. Do! Strike home! Destroy this body! You will still live. May your life be long and merry. The descending dagger was arrested at the word, and he, feeling my hold relax, extricated himself and drew his sword. While the uproar in the house and flying of the torches from one room to the other showed that soon we should be separated, in the midst of my frenzy there was much calculations. Fall I might, and so that he did not survive, I cared not for the death blow I might deal against myself, while still with my hesitation and the sudden thrust he made at me, I threw myself on his sword and at that same moment plunged my dagger with a true and desperate aim into his side. We fell together, rolling over each other, and the tide of blood that flowed from the gaping wound of each mingled on the grass. More, I know not. I fainted. Again, I returned to life. Weak almost to death, I found myself stretched upon a bed. Juliet was beside me, strange. My first broken request was for a mirror. I was so wan and ghastly that my poor girl hesitated, as she told me afterwards, but by their mass I thought myself right proper youth when I saw the dear reflection of my own well-known features. I confess it is a weakness, but I avow it. I do entertain a considerable affection for the countenance and limbs I behold. Whenever I look at it in glass and have more mirrors in my house and consult them oftener than any beauty in Genoa. Before you too much condemn me, permit me to say that no one better knows than I the value of his own body. No one, probably except myself, ever having had it stolen from him. Incoherently, I at first talked of the dwarf and his crimes and reproached Juliet for her too easy admission of his love. She thought me raving as well she might. Yet it was some time before I could prevail upon myself to admit that the Guido whose penitence had won her back for me was myself. And while I cursed bitterly that monstrous dwarf and blessed the well-directed blow that had deprived him of life, I suddenly checked myself when I heard her say, Amen knowing that him who she reviled was my very self. A little reflection taught me silence. A little practice enabled me to speak of that frightful night without any very excessive blunder. The wound I had given myself was no mockery of one. It was a long before I recovered. And as the benevolent and generous Torella sat beside me, talking such wisdom might win friends to repentance, and my own dear Juliet hovered near me, administering to my wants and cheering me by her smiles. The work of my bodily cure and mental reform went on together. 
I have never indeed wholly recovered my strength. My cheek is paler since, my person a little bent. Juliet sometimes ventures to allude bitterly to the malice that caused this change. But I kiss her on the moment and tell her all is for the best. I am a fonder and more faithful husband and true at this, but for that wound, never had I called her mine. I did not revisit the seashore nor seek the fiend's treasure, yet while I ponder on the past, I often think, and my confessor was not backward in favoring the idea that it might be a good rather than an evil spirit sent by my guardian angel to show me the folly and misery of pride. So well at least did I learn this lesson, roughly taught, as I was, that I am now known by all my friends and fellow citizens by the name of Guido Il Cortés. Wittershins is created by Ashley Nunez of Old Growth Alchemy and folk musician Joe Saborin in the presence of their curious cat Django, a few too many half-drunk cups of tea, and far too many begrudgingly half-completed art projects. If you'd like to follow along Joe and his musical machinations, you can find him at Joe Saborin Music on Facebook and Instagram, or joesaborin.com. For more glimpses into the wild woods of story, botanical libations, and central ephemera, you can find me, Ashley, at Old Growth Alchemy on Facebook and Instagram, or at oldgrowthalchemy.com. Or you can become patrons to us both on Patreon. Until next time, friends new and old, we'll be sure to keep the kettle on with a seat open for you by the fire. <laughs>